This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is John Simone. John is Vice President of Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon. Um, today we're going to be talking about what's going on in the in the federal market with regard to cyber um, and data resiliency and all kinds of interesting um, concepts, issues, challenges that we all face. And, John, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to, to this conversation. Um, and first of all, John, for the listeners, can you talk a little bit about your background and um, how you got to where you are with Raytheon? Yeah, sure. I, I've, I've been inside of the uh, IT world for longer than I'd like to to actually admit to, uh, all from you still the, look good. I appreciate that. <laughs> from the healthcare, I've been in healthcare, state and local, really pretty broad gamut of uh, different missions, different issues. Raytheon was just a great opportunity. It's a it's a wonderful company, great support for the cyber mission. So when I had the opportunity to come on and take over the cybersecurity and special missions business, I, I jumped at it. Right. So it's it's kind of interesting to me. So you know, I what do we say like. I've been doing this a long time in government procurement, and even five years ago, ten years ago, nobody really that I recall that I can remember at my age um, <laughs> talked a lot much about cyber um, and security, at least as ubiquitous as it is now. So in, in your career, did you always start out in the security angle, or did it evolve to something that you came to focus on? How, how did that no, in my career, I started out as a software developer okay. um, and really targeted into the healthcare space. And, and back in the day, you, you had different terms, whether it was mission assurance or data assurance um, and, and security, whether it was uh, identity management, access management. But cyber, because it's really a horizontal and it's a vertical, it's, it's really unique from, a, from an IT standpoint. Uh, it's a real – it's a unique domain to, to, to operate in because of the vertical and the horizontal nature. So it's the old saying, you know, you, you want to design security in in the beginning uh, versus at the end. So as, so as the threats have increased and the complexity have increased, the the verticalness and the horizontal nature of the solutions and, uh, have, been, have grown. Right. So, you know, and, and now this looking at where we are now in the market, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're seeing in current trends in the federal cyber market? Well, in the, in the well, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the on the offense side and the defense side. So, if you think specifically on the defense side, uh, there's a, there's a big trend for you know, kind of outcomes based or you know, how do you leverage a consolidate, right? Because you don't you don't need three or four socks. You know, one sock sock can can be you know more powerful from a sharing of information and, and protecting assets than you would have multiple socks. You have to keep in, in some form of uh, unison around. So, so there's a big trend around how to move to cyber as a service because the budgets, obviously, right. you know, the more the, the threats increase, the more costly it is to go address those. So when you can leverage cost uh, to attack these different problems, that also helps with the financial aspect. So you see it. So customers, you see, are looking, they're buying cyber as a service 
rather than they, you know, their they, own inorganic capability within the government? They well, I mean, it's a combination, right? right. But they absolutely want to. Uh, I don't. They're trying to figure out how to buy it. So obviously, you get the acquisition people lined up, and um, you know, and it's not you know, our government current contracting mechanisms isn't really set up to do that as easy as obviously as on the commercial side. But you can see our government customers trying to pushing the envelope, trying to figure that out, um, whether it's through OTAs or some form of quick turn acquisitions that, that allow them a little bit more flexibility in how they buy things uh, to try to move towards that model. So, and you know, when you when you talked about cyber as a service, I guess the thing immediately I think about is is the cloud and how that. Does the cloud, from your perspective, and the government's move, in particular the department's move, the Department of Defense moves to, you know, to the cloud and their cloud strategy, how does that does that create additional challenges for cybersecurity? Does it enhance the capability? What are you seeing in that in that regard? Well, both. Uh, so, so I mean, obviously, the cloud is a service model in and of itself. Uh, so. So protecting now, so as you if you think about cyber as a service, well, you got to wrap around protections inside the cloud in technology like five G or physical, uh, you know, security the the, the OTPs. All that stuff as it comes online is going to create more and more challenges. I think the model, the business model of, of a service is how you know you can provide you know cost efficient quality protection for agencies versus having them doing it piecemeal across the board and, and, and buy an outcome versus them going out and buying a proliferate of tools and then trying to integrate them all. How, how can it, you know, companies like Raytheon provide you know, really shrink-wrap SaaS models to protect their assets in the cloud and not? So, and when you're, when, you, when you're looking at that, when you're looking at, you know, the security issues from your perspective, when, you, when you're dealing with a customer, you – I mean, I guess where I'm going is what are all the things that you start to look at from an analytical perspective? It's it seems to me it's like what data are you trying to protect? You know, the physical security. It's the employees and having to, how do you deal with them? And that's usually where the weakest point of entry is, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. When you when you go to a customer, a customer is looking for support from you. When you're looking at their yeah, there are data infrastructure. Where do you start? I mean, that's a big question. But. Well, yeah, it really depends on what the problem. I mean, look, you know, first of all, you should always assume you're going to be attacked, and and or you, you know, it, it's it's not if it's it's when, and and really, it's a risk profile. Different enterprises, whether it's a federal government or whether it's a commercial enterprise, you know, where do you want to spend the budget you have? Like, what core assets need to be a really? You, know, you have to have confidence in the security and the resiliency. Versus where do you want to to allow a little bit of, of, of leeway? So so it's really one from a business standpoint. The customers have to figure out where they want to deploy their money for the biggest return based on what's most in jeopardy of, of hampering their mission. On 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 the vector now the vectors of attack, which obviously those are the uh, the areas in which systems can be penetrated from an enterprise. You know, depending on what your enterprise looks like, uh, your users, your uh, you're, you know, from a workforce deployment, things you do, uh, you know, do you make cars, do you make computer systems, do you make rockets, you're, you're going to have different vectors and, and some of those are going to be more vulnerable than others or more core to your, your business that you're going to want to make sure you focus on how those things are, are penetrated and make sure you put protocols in to keep those things safe. Right. right. And I don't know if this is related to that. I, again, I'm a, I'm a lay person. I, I just 
uh, you know, I'm not a cyber person, but you, when we started the conversation, this segment, you mentioned, you know, horizontal versus vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, is that when you're looking at, is that part of the equation when you're looking, I mean, there's horizontal, horizontally there's threats and if you're vertically integrated, right, the threats can go up the chain too. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, so the relates? example I would give you, well, so so horizontally when you look at it, you're saying as an enterprise, you know, what is my cyber policies and, 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 and how am I implementing these policies across and, and then monitoring. And they may go across multiple systems. So whether you have a financial system or you have a, 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 a HR system. Right. Logistics system. Logistics, yeah. right. So you have to have a, kind of a horizontal view. And, and those systems themselves have to have a view of how they handle security and, and defense. And then you have the vertical piece, which is, okay, now I'm going to put in my, my threat detection, my threat hunting, you know, where you think about your socks, the things that are, uh, you know, sensors on the edge uh, of, the, of the network, sensors on the IoT device or insider threat products. There's your vertical kind of cyber products, which are really geared towards uh, that malicious activity that could, could damage your, your enterprise. And and when you're, I guess, talking to a, a customer or looking at a challenge in that area, I mean, it's it sounds to me that it's that you have to not just look at it from um, from their perspective. You have to look at it from the outside too, looking in to see, you know, where those weaknesses are. Or does that make sense or not? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's weaknesses, and, and it's really – you think about it from a, a business a continuity and business resumption, like what, what core systems, you know, have to be resilient. Because you, you assume everything can be attacked, but how fast can you recover? So, so if, if a business, you know, like a car manufacturer or a financial sector, they need their core financial systems to be able to recover much faster than, let's say uh, – um, Making this up a procurement or maybe their HR systems because they they can take a t- couple of days to get back online. So you'll put different uh, you know steps in place, different you know policies in place, and different tools to protect that b- based on the threat and based on your 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 risk tolerance. Well, and John, we're we're already up on the first break. So when we come back, I, I want to get into um, something I know you talk a lot about is data resiliency and what are really you know. It's like pull that apart and you walk through what it what does that mean? What does it mean for a customer? What does it mean for a service provider um, to ensure that for for the customer as well? Just all the different aspects and characteristics of that. My guest today is John D. Simone. He's Vice President, Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John D. Simone. John is Vice President, Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon, and we're talking about um, this, the federal market and cyber, and you know the where things are going and what's happening. And uh, John, when I took the break, I mentioned data resiliency and data protection. That's I know it's something that you talk a lot about. Um, yeah. Um, and I, and I guess for the layperson, me, <laughs> what is data resiliency? Just to ask the basic sure. question first. Yeah, well, I mean, data resiliency means your data is recoverable after an attack. I mean, it's the resiliency word. Um, the reason you know we're focusing on data resiliency is that's really the core piece, right? When you think about 
breaches or you think about attacks that denials are, it's really limiting or affecting organizations' data because that's the life cycle. You have your applications, but really the data is the heart, heartbeat and the blood of everything. Um, so we, we have a, an approach that focuses on the orchestration of data, the protection and the management and the resiliency of data. N- not that we're not going to also protect the endpoints, but chasing these endpoints is, we think is a losing proposition. There's more and more devices coming online. So you, you, have, you put security out there, but if you're right. focusing and maximizing most of your spend on the endpoint security, that's not the way we believe is the right thing for, for the future. You really want to focus it back to make sure you have resiliency built in. You can control and manage your data through its entire life cycle, right? Not just right. as you're storing it, but as it's being created, uh, shared, modified, destroyed, right? You need to be able to manage that entire orchestration of life cycle and make sure that your organization is protected in the event of that data being tri- tampered with or, or, or accessed. Right. So that makes sense to me in the, uh, uh, that you're talking about you, you do protect the endpoints, you know, and that's part of the overall strategy. But the ability to recover after right. attack is vital. So how is it? Is it, you know, is it as simple as, you know, backing up the information? Is it? What, you know, just I'm curious about because sure. I'm thinking about the cloud, or you think about places that have been attacked, and to bring a bring it back online. Whether like I know like Baltimore had ransomware, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know they're in different cities and different places, and have had attacks. Bringing that inf- the system back up and running, mm-hmm. and making sure you still have your data and, and there's integrity to it. How? How do you address that sort of from a technical perspective? Right. Well, well, first, if you think about how you approach the problem, so, again, you're not going to not – you're still going to secure endpoints, but you're just yeah. not going to try to chase them all over the world and think and rely on that endpoint protection right to right. be – Well, it's the Internet of Things, right? Right. There's it's just, so many you're, you're different lose, entry points. You're going to lose right. that battle. You do the – yeah, it's a multi-layered approach. Right. right. So. But, but what you really need to do is focus on saying, okay, I have my data now. I'm going to build my cyber protection and my cyber systems and security around – the access to the control. So if you think about it this way. If I could guarantee you only your data ran on your devices, so only someone that had an authorized device, an authorized not, – not, not even the person yet. I haven't gotten that far. But if I can guarantee you that your data can only be accessed on an authorized device that, that you control, that's a step in the right direction. Right now, now I've, 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 I've created an environment where, I, where I've, I've ensured my data access has now got a layer of security that's, 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 that's beyond what we're kind of looking at today. And then you start adding the people on top of that to say, now I'm going to make sure I'm going to authenticate my person uh, the, or my employees that access this information at each step, not just at the entry point of the system. So when they come in and log in. Right. They, have, they don't have access to everything. Right? Well, it's not only that. Well, that- what I'm saying is. Sure. Most most time you have an authentication system, you get into the network, and then maybe you can access a machine. So you have mm-hmm. that kind of – it's a multi-layered, but it's usually a system-based. But if you can authenticate people and machines all together at each phase of a, of a data's life cycle. So, so if someone's trying to modify a piece of data, are they on the right machine, on the right network? Is it the right user? Are they doing something that matches their job description? Now you're into – Zero trust because I'm assuming you're not. So you have to you have to you prove have to, to me that. that you're on the right. You know those different criteria. Now you become where you can manage and control your data, and and that, and that brings it into what you know we look at as more of a command and control environment. 
So, so the way we think about it at Raytheon, it's a lot like a battlefield. So we think the enterprise is a new battlefield. So just like you can manage all your command and control assets, what's happening, bring it back to a situation room, understand what assets that you have, what remediations you can do to, to, to deal with threats, pulling all that together, that we see that as the future of, of cyber protection. So, and as part of that, what, I'm just listening to you and, and your description of that, you know, does a person, is, is whoever is on that computer, is the computer the right one, is right. it the right person, all those things, are they doing the right thing, right? right. Is it meet their job description? Is that a machine learning approach? Is it artificial? How do you, when you're thinking about how you deliver that, that, I guess, um, oversight of the system, for lack of a better term, how do you? To well, that goes to what I said about the command and control because okay. every one of these systems so, – so if you think about what I just said, mm-hmm. there's already these point products. And when I say point product, you have, a, you have a, an identity and access or an insider threat product. You have a, you know, an endpoint security product. You, you, know, you have a, maybe a back-end even data uh, product that, that protects your – but in each one of those products are going to build in their own quote, whether it's you know, true AI or machine learning to build in – these learning systems to say, yeah, are, are they doing it in this sphere? And, you know, inside of the insider threats, should they be doing A, B, and C? But when you look at it from an overall enterprise and you start to tie these things together, you need something sitting on top of that. So, so you're taking the feeds that come from your your, your insider threat, you're sure. ma- marrying it with your the things you're seeing on the network from a network traffic monitor. Let's say you're marrying it from things you're seeing out of your backend, uh, you know, servers and data and the applications there. So, so it's going to be everywhere. AI and ML is going to be everywhere, but that's the point of the command and control where you have to be able to pull all that up to one major enterprise level so that you can, you can put these same AI, ML kind of models across all these different systems. So is, so you're, 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 is it almost like, I mean, I think like a traffic cop in a certain sense, whether you can, you know, it's red light, green light, and whether you can, and watching – the flow of the information. Yeah, it's, well, we we use the traffic cop. Is, you know, I wouldn't use that analogy it's because, it's, That's, I'm, because it's it's either stop or go. But but it is some, but it is it, it is accurate. But it's not always that that clear, right? In other words, some of the time you 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 are bringing all these feeds up, and you need to look at them across an enterprise and to determine if things are starting to get out of the ordinary, and then provide what remediations you can. And you may not just shut them down, but you may have, you know. At, Remedies that you can say, well, I'm going to isolate them, so I'm going to put them in a different subnet. I'm going to, you know, watch their behavior. I'm going to limit their response time. Isolate it, kind of where you can multiple things, right? right? So, so that you can get more proactive because you don't want to be able to be in a situation where, as soon as you detect an anomaly, you just shut everybody's access off because that's not going to work for the workforce, right? People are going to say this is crazy because you're going to have to pick a side. Do you want to be risk averse or, or not? So, do you want to? You know, figure out things later, which kind of happens today, where where a lot of things were. You know, how many days past the incident are we? Are we fifteen days past the breach that we figure it out, and then we got to mm-hmm. go back and do the forensics, or where you can get a little bit more close to, you know, immediate real time detection and then real time response. Right. So, what you've described is that the term that I know we talked about in between, saying about zero, zero trust. yeah, zero zero trust. The way we look at zero trust, that's the Assumption that in every step of 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 a user's activity, uh, interaction with the enterprise and the network and the data, you 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 assume they're they're not they're the bad guy, 
right? And you you have no trust for them. So so at every stage, you're watching their actions. They're watching all these different attributes to make sure you can validate what they're doing as they go along. So it's not just hey you you have the right credentials because as you said I think earlier, m- most of the problems usually you know users. It's in the people, right? They, right? Their passwords get stolen. so Right. They respond to phishing email. Right. Or so, you don't, right. so that's why you don't assume that just because you have the right credentials that you're still doing something that you should be doing. So you're looking at these things at each step and you're bringing in all this data from different sensors to figure out if this action should be allowed to proceed or do you stop it. Right. And you know what? We're already up on the break, John. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Um I, one of the weakness of the employees, I mean, maybe we can talk, start the segment talking a bit about that and the training and, and what you see in, 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 that, in that regard as a challenge and an opportunity for the government customer. My guest today is John D. Simone. He's Vice President, Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Simone. John is Vice President, Cyber and Special Missions at Raytheon. Um, and, you know, John, last break we talked a lot about um, zero authentication, data resiliency, and all the different layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me because, um, you know, trying to account for the human condition mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, – and, as a weak link in, in any organization from the security perspective and cyber is kind of unique. Um, so I thought the segment may, and we could talk a little bit about some of the training that, you know, you see going on out in the marketplace, some of the specific training that you all do at Raytheon, both I guess for your customers, but also internally, just your sort of overall approach um, in, in what you're seeing. Sure. Well, so obviously, as we talked about from last segment, then uh, from an end user standpoint, you know, the training on the cyber policies and the password uh, hygiene and things of that nature, that's a that's something that every organization should do yeah. and check the box. And, um, and the more that happens, uh, you know, the better off from a protection standpoint, because most of the breaches come in through that area. Um, we focus, obviously, right now we focus on that. But then in our cyber business itself, we also offer... Uh, we are cyber training academy, so we're really focused on developing the cyber workforce uh, for the future. Because as, as as the technology evolves and the threats and everything becomes connected, you know the the cyber skill sets are going to be more and more in demand, and we need more and more qualified, trained people. So we actually have a global program. We train uh, students internationally. Uh, we have an internal program that we train from. Uh, even the offensive side, all the way across. So, so we 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 are doubling down and have a hard focus on training in the cyber skill set area. So, in in terms of that, you say it's worldwide. It's I mean, you know, Raytheon is a global company, right? right? Um, from a training perspective, is that um, you know, I don't know how to ask this question. I guess to say, do you you know, overall big picture, are we training we as a um, as a nation government, are we training enough of these folks? Is it something that's where the supply and demand is yeah, is right right now, or the increasing demand? You, is oh that- no, we absolutely need more. 
We need yeah. more. We we absolutely need more. And there's there's two senses, right? We have everybody needs to be trained to some degree in cyber, yeah. right? So no matter what your job is, right, you have you need to be trained at some form of cyber. And then if you're an actual software developer or you're system administrator, you you, you need an, another layer above that. And then if you're actually in the cyber workforce, then you go even higher and higher. But so so one, it's just it's like cyber awareness. So you have to understand. How the threats are, are uh, what threats are out there, and how they're, the vectors are coming in attack, so that you can help prevent yourself from being a vulnerability. Um, but from a workforce standpoint, you know the jobs uh, around this uh, cyber are just you know in a high demand now, and we we as a country need to continue to develop a cyber workforce. Right. I'm curious when I when you when you when you told me about when you mentioned the cyber academy and you have a curriculum there. The immediate thing that comes to mind is that, you know, part of it is right. I'm sure it's some I use in quotes for those on the radio who can't see me doing this. Um, you know, there's textbook training, right, and mm-hmm. understanding. But, I, you know, is part of this simulations for folks where they actually go into and do exercises on, you know, addressing a you know, situations, I guess? For like yeah, we, we have what they call red we, – we, we have labs. Mm-hmm. Well, first let me step back. So, you know – the way we approach training, and, and especially on the international side, we, we have an enterprise-level training. What, what that means is we're looking to train hundreds of people at an enterprise level um, from both, let's say, entry-level positions to actual operating positions to manager positions. So we, we have a training program that fills the whole stack. So if you're executive, you have a, a certain level course. If you're just a standard user, you have a, a certain level course. Now if you're a cyber operator, whether it's in defense or of a then there's another layer course. So we're looking we, – we, that program we have says, you know, countries and that we work with or customers we work with that want to do a, a wholesale training to to a large department. That's how we attack it. So it's it's not like your simple certifications of, hey, sure. I want to be a Cisco certified whatever. So we, 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 ad- we address it at an enterprise view. And inside that, inside of all our trainings, you know, we have a code center that we that we, we do a lot of um, – of, of cyber resiliency and, and, and labs and testing. So we've kind of taken that approach and built it into our training where we have red team, blue teams, we have labs, depending on how, what level course you're in. So it's very, very hands-on. Right. And, and, and in dealing with, you know, training and, and people, yeah, this might be a tough question, but what's the biggest challenge? You get people to pay attention to this or is it? I don't, I, I think, I think people pay attention. I think the challenge is just getting, more people we can get into the field. I mean, I really, I really, okay. I mean, everybody, I, I don't think, especially from a leadership standpoint, uh, um, everybody, this is top of mind. I, you know, I don't, I can't go anywhere in the world and someone, you know, not want to talk about cyber. Uh, now the question is how do you just continue to build that workforce and what does it look like and how fast can you do it? And then the other aspect is, you know, we talked about in the last segment is how do you build systems that, that, enable users to, to, to not to be able to protect themselves from themselves much easier and also right. allow them to innovate mm-hmm. and, and then also design these systems so you don't they don't need to be user dependent so you have to have hundreds of people operating them you can do them with less so so you can free up these talented resources to do other things right so they're not yeah so people are just doing the protection piece all the time they're actually creating things right correct right. so it's part of that addressing that Gap. I think you almost sort of touched on it right there. It, it is. Do you see over time, you know, AI and machine learning, you know, 
you know, filling, you know, to the extent there's a gap, for lack of a better term, in, you know, capability and the training of cyber specialists and that sort of thing. Is that going to be, I mean, it seems to me that would be a big piece of the future Well, I think it's solution. Tra- tra- it, well, it's a big piece. It's a big piece on how we're going to, again, reduce the labor requirements. Right. right? That, I mean, that's, that's where, sort of where I'm going. That's, yeah. that, it, because you have to, you have to, and this is, and this, as we said, you know, this is not like, hey, let's take labor out, and, mm-hmm. and because we, where it's too expensive, this is we need to take labor out to redeploy them to do other things. Because, it, as we said earlier, there's so much of a demand. So, right. so the, the, if we can use AI and ML to reduce the the people that are needed to to deploy these systems and manage these systems, that's going to free us up and put a little bit of take a little stress off of this cyber talent gap that we have right now. So, but, but it's going to, it's going to be a critical part. of, right. of the and, 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 and won't it also increase capability? I mean, if you go, I mean, AI versus. It absolutely should. Yeah. And, and, but, and that's why I go back and to, to, you know, this kind of command and control, but I, cause I do think in order to do that, you also have to have a little, you have to have the AI and the ML, but you're going to have to have some form of uh, collapse or if you will, or, or of, of the technologies, it's going to have to consolidate. we, you know, you you can't have as many different types of tools and sensors floating around. You have to uncomplicate the environment, but raise the quality of defense in in order to really do that efficiently. Sure, that's interesting terminology. I like to uncomplicate the environment. I mean, is that one of the core things you guys think? Well, about? we think I really we, like that. Well, well, I mean, look, I think technology from history you can always see as new technologies comes out, you have. You know, technologies condense and collapse, right? Whether it's way back in the day, you, you know, when I was first, you know, doing e-business, you had, you know, you had Java servers and you had web servers. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, a couple of years later, all of a sudden, you know, BEA had the WebLogic platform, which I don't know how many people still know that, but can, can, can condense the two, right? So you don't need these two. Now you need one. So you're re- and you think about it from a resource standpoint, you didn't really need two different resources emerged into one. Mm. So the job role actually changed. So as technology condenses and collapses, it actually changes the job market because it merges different skill sets and resources. And, and that's progress. So, so, and then the next innovative technology comes on top. Um, that, that, that's what you know, we, we really need to keep driving on the cyber side where we've got to figure out how to take this proliferation of tools and start to get it to condense and collapse, and collapse, yeah. so that then we can then pull the job market along with it and training. So we don't need experts in seventeen different technologies. We can get away with five, mm-hmm. uh, and that and that's that's kind of where I think the future has to go to. Or, or we're going to lose the battle because you just can't generate enough people, and the tools and the complexity of it also creates potentially more vectors, right? More complex your right. system, maybe right. your defense could be more vulnerable. Do you do you? Do you have a sense or do you feel like that's – I mean it, it is a – I guess an, it's part of the evolution of technology yeah. that it does start to condense or collapse. Do you see that happening right now, whether it's the way – I, I don't I, know if cloud – Well, yeah, yeah, I see it a little bit. I think it's inevitable because basically from a cost standpoint, you know, if you look at the growth, mm-hmm. it's just not sustainable, right? Because you, 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 in other words, the growth of the cyber – needs and budgets as it continues to on the defense side i mean you know it's growing because the threats are out there and you need to scale well i mean it it, it has to be capped at some point in other words it can't you're you know right it will swallow up everything else it swallows up everything else and then your core mission stuff is is, is going to be deprived so so 
I think the market will will force that, right? Because at some point, there's just there's you're going to have to figure out how to provide better quality, better security for less. Right. Hey, that's a good place to stop because we're already up on the break, uh, John. Uh, and and when we come back, um, I'd like to you know you start you sort of mentioned where we started talking about technology. You want to talk a little bit more some about some of the technologies Raytheon has you know introduced in the market. Um, and then also just take a step back and look at the big picture overall as we conclude the show in the next segment. Uh, my guest today is John D. Simone. He is Vice President for Cyber and Special Missions at Raytheon. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John D. Simone. He is Vice President for cybersecurity and special missions at Raytheon. And John, you know, when we just at the end of the last segment, start kind of teased this segment to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the technologies and, you know, your overall and Raytheon's overall approach to bringing technologies to the customer. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, and to set that up a little bit, I mean, first you have to understand our, the cybersecurity business out of Raytheon. We, we're the only cybersecurity pro, uh, provider that, that we know of with the breadth that we have. So if you think about it, you know, it's a vertically integrated cyber business. What, what I mean by stating that is we sell into all markets, the labs, the, the in, intelligence uh, community, the DOD, the FedCiv, the commercial, and international. And it's all integrated under one leadership and one structure. So we're able to see the breadth of requirements. Right, and then we off, you know we operate in the defensive space, we operate in the offensive space, and we operate on the special mission side. So, so we really have a tremendous view of what's out there from the needs and the demands and what's happening. And we have so if you can imagine, we have products that are across that entire spectrum. So we have things from uh, electronic armor, which is you know provides authentication and uh, around or, or, or trust root of trust, if you will around your devices it boots up. We have that product in a boot shield so you're confident when you turn your machine on it's exactly what's you know what's on there as it's supposed to be on there. We have a CADS product that, that is focused on aviation security so to make sure the, the bus is on, a, on an aircraft, uh, the communication that's going across from landing gear to engines are secure and has been tampered when they fall. So we have a really wide breadth across all these different spaces. Data resiliency, we talked about stuff in, in that area, our Red Pro, which is our Raytheon, basically enterprise data resiliency platform. We talked about the command and control earlier. We have we have assets and products in that space. Um, but the one interesting thing I'll, I want to definitely mention is given all that, we still believe it's critical that we reach out to our commercial partners and bring in even more because right. we, we don't believe that we're going to build all the technology for the future ourselves. In other words, to be innovative, to be able to be agile and to move fast, you have to be able to adapt, deal with new technologies that come aboard, and, and as I said earlier, hopefully integrate them in what we're doing so you can keep the complexity down for the end user. So we've reached out and we have several commercial partnerships that we, we do for technology, and we bring those in and, and we sell them and deploy them just like they're our own. So we have a big push around how to deal with technologies that we find from the Silicon Valleys and all over to, to make sure that we can get them to our customers' missions as fast as possible. So and that's that's really that's interesting, and and you just sort of sparked a couple of questions for me, um, for you, 
you know, around that, those partnerships with, you know, commercial firms. And it seems to me one of the things that, you know, innovation, you know, there's a lot of, lot today talking about like bringing in, you know, non-traditional government contractors, mm-hmm. you know, non-traditional firms to do government contracts, especially in IT, especially the department talks about mm-hmm. that a fair mm-hmm. amount. But it seems to me what I've seen, and I don't know, it's that there, there's an effective approach is that combination of a company like yours with that broad, you know, depth of experience and supporting all kinds of different missions and being able to sort of understand the government customer because that is something, in my experience, it, you have to have a lot of experience to be able to do that. And, and then being able to partner with new capabilities from the market, it seems like a pretty powerful approach. No, I, well, no absolutely. Well, and, and if I step back, when I think my interpretation, when I hear our customers talk about innovation or, or when I hear about commercial, because let me first say some of the best technology that, that I've ever been around has been developed inside our government and, and with, with yeah. our yeah, as partnerships with, with our so, – so I don't think it's the quality of the technology. When I hear it, it's, it's, it's the speed at yes. which you can get access to it. So absolutely. it's, it's the You're speed of right innovation, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, as you well know, you know, government contracting, and that's, I think that's why people are going after the OTAs, takes a longer period. Um, it's harder to get access. So, so, so we're, we're looking at it as how do we give our customers access to technology quicker and faster than we would normally do in our process. And now on the commercial side, most of the small companies, they don't, they don't you know, deal directly with the government because a few reasons, right? Think about it. Like you said, it's complex. you got to know. There's, there's requirements on how they do their financial systems and yada, yada, yada. But also, you know, from a funding standpoint, if you, most small companies have a 12 to 18-month kind of horizon, whether they're inside of a private equity firm or not. They're, they're, they're in chunks, small chunks. Yes. So they really can't see beyond. And when you think about governance, usually, you know, it's beyond 12 to 18 months. So, so that's why we believe it's a nice marriage for us because we can provide that condo and we can provide the access – uh, we, you know, the vehicle comes through, we can move the technology quicker. So I think it works really well for our commercial partners because we can limit their costs in, in dealing with the government and give them a conduit to bring it in to make sure their technology gets mission-oriented so it really works. And we, can, we believe it helps our government customers because they get access to technology at a much faster pace. Right. And, that, and that's, that's been our strategy moving forward. Yeah. That's, 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 that's fascinating. And one of the things I've asked people just about teaming and partnering with people before, and it was interesting, is like when you're thinking, is does culture, you know, the play a big role, or how do you meld those? If you're, you know, going to be working with a flat-out commercial firm that hasn't done any government contracting, and you're you're in a certain sense trying to translate to them, well, this is the <laughs> these are the complexities we have to deal with, and it they are different cultures. Is that how do you guys handle that? Well, from a culture standpoint, honestly, you know what we've been doing over the last two and a half, three years is we've been modifying our culture. Uh, so, so we're not trying to change them. We, 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 we're really trying to change us so that we can be a little bit more nimble and agile and think. We, we obviously can't go to that whole entire model sure, because sure. you know we have to mirror our customers to some degree. But we're trying to provide that glue between where our customers are now and where the where our commercial partners are. And how do we move our culture to shift and be a good blend between the two? Right, and uh, 
that's an interesting that you one would argue that the government's trying to be more nimble as well. Whether right. you mentioned OTAs, a perfect example of that, or even some of the other streamlining, you know, going to the cloud, um, things like that. Um, so we got about two minutes left, and I wanted to return to you know something that you've um, highlighted and mentioned a couple different times, and just get some final thoughts on that. And this is this issue of the right the balance. Uh, between the ability to innovate, which we were just talking about, right? right? You know, versus the protection of that innovation and how, you know, right. one, you know, that protection doesn't overwhelm the ability to innovate. And just some of your thoughts on that. As a yeah, I, I think that's absolutely critical. I think, you know, going forward, you, you know, if you think about the people that make up these small companies or you think about some of the, the, the young people coming out of school, you, you know, even, you know, you try to bring them into our environment. If you have to tell them you can go into this, but go into this skiff and you have to leave your cell phone. I mean, we, we still have to deal with some of that stuff, but we have to be able to focus on, on the new generation and allow our systems to allow them to, 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 to be able to be free thinking and innovate and not curtain or curtain kind of where their heads are and where, and how they go about performing their jobs. So we've, we've got to let our cyber protection systems, be flexible enough and focus on how users can be innovative and, 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 and flexible inside those systems and not just lock things down. It's, yeah. It, it's, this is just, I'm going to have to come back on the show and get an update on where things are and how things are going, especially this, this issue of, it's a, it is a fundamental sort of strategic question, right? About, you know, the ability to innovate and are we, do we overwhelm that ability focusing on protecting all this information and where you find that balance? Because at the end of the day, if you can't innovate, you're not going to win, right? right? Right. And we have to do it fast because our competitors – They don't have the, the federal acquisition regulation. And when I say our competitors, <laughs> I don't mean our, our competitors in the market. I think about the nation state actors. Yeah, the actors. near-peer actors. Yeah. They, don't, they, don't, they don't have these, these – Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. John, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. My guest today has been John D. Simone. He is Vice President, Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon. And I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day... You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one.
Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.